Chapter Ten, Section Two of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Ten, Section Two. The clock on the mantel-shelf began to strike nine. Levi jumped to his feet. "'I shall be late for school,' he cried, making for the door. "'Stop! stop!' shouted his father. "'Thou hast not benched yet.' "'Oh, yes, I have, father. While you were all telling stories, I was benching quietly to myself.' "'Is Saul among the prophets? Is Levi also among the story-tellers?' murmured Pinchas to himself. Aloud, he said, uh, The child speaks truth. I saw his lips moving. Levi gave the poet a grateful look, snatched up his satchel, and ran off to number one Royal Street. Pinchas followed him soon, inwardly upbraiding Reb Shmuel for meanness. He had only as yet had his breakfast for his book. Perhaps it was Simcha's presence that was to blame. She was the Reb's right hand, and he did not care to let her know what his left was doing. He retired to his study when Pinchas departed, and the Rebbitson clattered about with a besom. The study was a large square room, lined with bookshelves and hung with portraits of the great continental rabbis. The books were bibliographic monsters, to which the family Bibles of the Christian are mere pocket-books. They were all printed purely with the consonants, the vowels being divined grammatically or known by heart. In each there was an island of text in a sea of commentary, itself lost in an ocean of super-commentary that was bordered by a continent of super-super commentary. Reb Shmuel knew many of these immense folios, with their torturous windings of argument and anecdote, much as the child knows the village it was born in, the crooked byways and the field-paths. Such and such a rabbi gave such and such an opinion on such and such a line from the bottom of such and such a page. His memory of it was a visual picture. And just as the child does not connect its native village with the broader world without, does not trace its streets and turnings till they lead to the great towns, does not inquire as to its origins and its history, does not view it in relation to other villages, to the country, to the continent, to the world, but loves it for itself and in itself. So Reb Shmuel regarded and reverenced and loved these gigantic pages with their serried battalions of varied type. They were facts, absolute as the globe itself, regions of wisdom, perfect and self-sufficing. A little obscure here and there, perhaps, and in need of amplification or explication for inferior intellects. A half-finished manuscript commentary on one of the super-commentaries to be called The Garden of Lilies was lying open on Reb Shmuel's own desk. And yet the only true encyclopedia of things terrestrial and 
divine. And indeed they were wonderful books, and was as difficult to say what was not in them as what was. Through them the old rabbi held communion with his God, whom he loved with all his heart and soul, and thought of as a genial father, watching tenderly over his children, and chastising them, because he loved them. Generations of saints and scholars linked Reb Shmuel with the marvels of Sinai. The infinite network of ceremonial never hampered his soul. It was his joyous privilege to obey his father in all things, and, like the king, who offered to reward the man who invented a new pleasure, he was ready to embrace the sage who could deduce a new commandment. He rose at four every morning to study, and snatched every odd moment he could during the day. Rabbi Meyer, that ancient ethical teacher, wrote, Whosoever labours in the Torah for its own sake, the whole world is indebted to him. He is called friend, beloved, a lover of the all-present, a lover of mankind. It clothes him in meekness and reverence. It fits him to become just, pious, upright, and faithful. He becomes modest, long-suffering, and forgiving of insult. Reb Shmuel would have been scandalized if anyone had applied these words to him. At about eleven o'clock Hannah came into the room, an open letter in her hand. "'Father,' she said, "'I have just had a letter from Samuel Levine.' "'Your husband?' he said, looking up with a smile. "'My husband,' she replied, with a fainter smile. "'And what does he say?' "'It isn't a very serious letter. He only wants to reassure me that he is coming back by Sunday week to be divorced by you.' "'All right.' "'Tell him I won't charge him any fee,' he said with the foreign accent that made him seem somehow more lovable to his daughter when he spoke English. "'He'll take that for granted,' Hannah replied. "'Fathers are expected to do these little things for their own children.' "'Yes, I would marry you with pleasure,' said Reb Shmuel. "'But divorce is another matter. I shall not even get back the dowry. And you really think I am Sam Levine's wife? How many times am I to tell you? Some authorities take the kavanah, the intention, into account. But the letter of the law is clearly against you. It is far safer to be formally divorced. Then, if he were to die— Save us and grant us peace, interrupted the Reb in horror. I should be his widow. I suppose you would. But what nourishkeit! Why should he die? It isn't as if you were really married to him," said the Reb, his eye twinkling. But isn't it all absurd, father? Don't talk so," said Reb Shmuel, assuming his gravity. Is it absurd that you should be scorched if you play with fire? Hannah did not reply to the question. You never told me how you got on at Manchester," she said, 
Did you settle the dispute satisfactorily? Oh, yes, said the Reb, but it was very difficult. Both parties were so envenomed, and it seemed that the feud had been going on in the congregation ever since the Day of Atonement, when the rabbi refused to blow the shofar three minutes too early, as the president requested. The treasurer sided with the rabbi, and there has almost been a split. The sounding of the New Year trumpet seems often to be the signal for war, said Hannah sarcastically. It is so, said the Reb sadly. And how did you repair the breach? Just by laughing at both sides. They would have turned a deaf ear to reasoning. I told them that Midrash about Jacob's journey to Laban. What is that, father? Oh, it is an amplification of the biblical narrative. The verse in Bereshis says that he lighted on the place, and he put up there for the night, because the sun had set, and he took of the stones of the place and made them into pillows. But later on it says that he rose up in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put as his pillows. Now what is the explanation? Reb Shmuel's tone became momentarily more sing-song. In the night the stones quarrelled for the honour of supporting the patriarch's head, and so by a miracle they were turned into one stone to satisfy them all. Now you remember that when Jacob arose in the morning he said, How fearful is this place! This is none other than the house of God. So I said to the wranglers, Why did Jacob say that? He said it because his rest had been so disturbed by the quarrelling stones that it reminded him of the house of God, the synagogue. I pointed out how much better it would be if they ceased their quarrellings and became one stone. And so I made peace again in the Kehillah." "'Till next year,' said Hannah, laughing. "'But, father, I've often wondered why they allow the ram's horn in the service. I thought all musical instruments were forbidden." Ah, oh, it is not a musical instrument in practice," said the Reb, with evasive facetiousness. And indeed the performers were nearly always incompetent, marring the solemnity of great moments by asthmatic wheezings and thin, far-away tootlings. But it would be if we had trained trumpeters," persisted Hannah, smiling. Uh, if you really want the explanation, it is that since the fall of the Second Temple we have dropped out of our worship all musical instruments connected with the old temple worship, especially such as have become associated with Christianity. But the ram's horn on the New Year is an institution older than the temple, and especially enjoined in the Torah. But surely there's something spiritualizing about an organ." For reply the Reb pinched her ear. "'Oh, you are a sad Epicurus,' he said half-seriously. "'If you loved God you would not want an organ to take your thoughts to heaven.' He released her ear and took up his pen, humming with unction a synagogue air full of joyous flourishes. Hannah turned to go, then turned back. "'Father,' she said nervously, blushing a little, 
who was that you said you had in your eye oh, no one in particular said the reb quietly embarrassed and avoiding meeting her eye as if to conceal the person in his but you must have meant something by it she said gravely you know i'm not going to be married off to please other people the reb wriggled uncomfortably in his chair it was only a thought an idea if it does not come to you too it shall be nothing i don't mean anything serious really my dear i didn't to tell the truth he finished suddenly with a frank heavenly smile uh, the person i had mainly in my eye when i spoke was your mother this time his eye met hers and they smiled at each other with the consciousness of the humours of the situation the rebbitson's broom was heard banging vigorously in the passage hannah bent down and kissed the ample forehead beneath the black skull-cap mr levine also writes insisting that i must go to the purim ball with him and leah she said glancing at the letter a husband's wishes must be obeyed answered the reb no i will treat him as if he really were my husband retorted hannah i will have my own way i shan't go the door was thrown open suddenly oh yes thou wilt said the rebbitson thou art not going to bury thyself alive End of chapter ten